following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You might recognize this graphic. Uh, It's been a while since we've been in our series in Luke. We've been in it for over two years now, and that's why we've been sort of interspersing it with other mini-series in between. Um, And so it probably is going to take us about four years to get through the Gospel of Luke in truth. But uh, we'll we'll interrupt it periodically like we did with the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, The text that we want to look at this morning is Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. And it's, it's um, kind of a heavy passage where it's these six woes that Jesus gives to these religious leaders of his time. And so if you have your Bible with you, would invite you to turn there, Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. I'm only going to look up to about the first half of the passage because the second half gets a bit complicated with some of the historical and theological issues that he goes into. So I'm going to sort of reserve that for the next week. But it, it reads, we'll read the whole passage together because it should be treated really as one. And it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and ask for insight to the words of your son, words that are heavy, words that are even, uh, you can say, difficult to hear, and uh, give to us the insight and the understanding 
of what distressed the heart of Christ as he confronted these Pharisees and grant to us the wisdom and the humility to look within our own hearts to see if there may be something there for us to repent of and turn uh, to you seeking your mercy and seeking your grace in this day of worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we just concluded this series in Ecclesiastes and we're now turning back to our Gospel of Luke. And as we said through that series of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is what we call part of the wisdom books, which is comprised of Job and Psalm and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And in essence, the journey recorded in Ecclesiastes, this journey of the preacher, is a journey in search of wisdom. How do we live a meaningful, worthwhile life? In other words, how do I become a wise person? Now, wisdom can be a really tricky thing to grasp. Um, You can be incredibly book smart. You can have an IQ that is off the charts. And yet, according to the Bible, still be considered a fool in God's eyes. In other words, intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. I would say also... It's not hard to recognize intelligence, is it? Intelligence is, you know, knowing the capital of Brazil. It's it's the ability to solve a a very complex math problem. Uh, But I would argue that wisdom is not so easy to recognize. And, in fact, I think often wisdom stares us right in the face. We don't recognize it. Or we don't... Um, give the credit of the value that it holds for us. We're unconvinced. And so the truth is often, I think we reject wisdom. We walk away from wisdom, not believing that it's for us. Um, In other words, what I'm saying is, you may have an Ivy League education. You could be a Harvard grad, and yet still not have the wisdom to hold your marriage together, to live a life without regret. We cannot equate intelligence with wisdom. Intelligence is only a matter of the head, but the Bible tells us that wisdom is a matter of both the head and the heart. And as we were seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes, we could sort of summarize wisdom like this. Wisdom is ultimately about putting God at the center of your life And letting everything else, whether it's your money, your career, your marriage, your children, all your other relationships, all your hopes and dreams, that would then flow out of that worship of him. That would be, in God's assessment, the person who is declared as wise. Now, as we jump back into the Gospel of Luke, I think one of the questions that we uh, need to ask is, is there really any connection between all this wisdom literature and the life of Jesus, as it's recorded in the Gospels, and I would argue a definitive yes. Whenever we read the Old Testament, it's important to understand that everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. And, after, and so there's this interesting story in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, when Jesus, after he died and resurrected, appeared before two of his disciples who are on this road to a town called Emmaus. And they clearly don't understand the meaning of the cross. And so they're just depressed that Jesus died. And they think he's gone for good. 
And so as they're walking on this road, they don't realize they're walking with Jesus, but what Jesus starts doing is he starts having a Bible study with them. And what he does is he, in essence, takes them back to the Old Testament, every part of the Old Testament, and he tells them what it all means in Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, this was the most amazing Bible study in the history of mankind. Can you imagine that? Jesus just walking with you and starting from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, getting into Isaiah and Daniel and going on and on, Esther and Job and Ruth and Song of Songs. He says all of this stuff, all of it was pointed to Jesus, pointed in essence, he was secretly saying, to me. And that's a fundamental understanding of the Old Testament. That whether it is the wisdom books, or the historical books, or the law, or the prophets, what Jesus was arguing to his disciples was, it was all about me. All of it was talking about the Christ, about me. Now, I would argue that for some of these types of literature, it's not that hard to understand how it's about Jesus. You know, you've, if you've been in the church at all in any time, you hear about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, how through his perfect sinless life, he fulfilled the law that we couldn't fulfill. When you read the prophets, one of the things that you may know is that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. So that connection between the prophetic books and the life of Christ becomes pretty obvious. You may also know that when you read the historical books, People like King David, they become foreshadowings of Christ's own kingship. And so we see that, that David was sort of pointing us to Christ because he was an example of Jesus, the Christ king that was to come. But when you get to wisdom literature, I think you don't hear much about the connection between books like Ecclesiastes and how they connect with Jesus Christ. In what way does Jesus fulfill the wisdom literature? Well, if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, um, actually, that's, that's a cut and paste error there. It actually reads, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. In other words, what we can say is that Jesus is the wisest man who ever lived and showed us by both his teaching and example how to live a life that pleases God. In other words, all that stuff that's written in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and all this about what it means to be wise, what Jesus would claim is, I am the embodiment of that wisdom. In other words, I am the wisest person who ever walked this world. And if you want to know how to be wise, obey my teaching, follow my example, understand what it means to be wise by looking at my life and my teaching. And one of the things that we're going to see even in our passage this morning is there's a lot of wisdom language being used in this passage, talking about knowledge and wisdom and the fool and things like that, okay? Well, the story begins this morning with Jesus being invited to the meal of a Pharisee. Now, as you may know, Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And I had mentioned it in an earlier message in our Luke series, but Listen, if you were going to guess, if you didn't know history, didn't know anything about the Bible, the New Testament, if you were going to guess who would be the most likely candidates to be disciples of Jesus when he showed up on the scene, 
I think the truth is, you would have guessed the Pharisees. You really would. Why? Well, because they were not in this snobby, upper-class elite like the Sadducees were, who were more political than religious. The Pharisees came from the common people, just like Jesus did. They were, at least outwardly, the most religious, the most devout among all the Jews. In fact, their name Pharisee literally means separated one because they lived such radical lives of obedience to God's commandments that they were set apart from everybody else. They stood head and shoulders above everyone as being the most religious, being the most devout people. And so when God sends his only son to the earth, No one could fault you if you would have guessed that these would also be the ones that were his most ardent followers, his most devout disciples. But this is where the story is so goofy. These religious people who supposedly loved God with all of their heart, actually the exact opposite happened. When Jesus, the Son of God, came to the earth, they became his worst enemies. his mortal enemies, and actually participated in his crucifixion, getting him arrested, presenting him to the Romans to be crucified. Now, I think right there that ought to give us some pause to think that the most religious people in Jesus' day end up becoming God's worst enemies. What happens in that dynamic of religion that sometimes can cause us to become enemies of God. I think it's worth thinking about, especially for many of us who've grown up our entire lives in the church and surround ourselves with religious activities and sort of feel good about ourselves because we're doing these things. And maybe as it was true of the Pharisees, the truth is you're missing the whole boat. I mean, you don't have a clue what religion is. was intended to be. Well, in our story this morning, the problem begins when Jesus doesn't wash his hands before a meal. Um, My dad would have hated Jesus because of this, because as I was growing up, my dad's a surgeon, okay? And it's like he had OCD or something. Every single time, wash your hands, wash your hands. It says in verses 37 to 38, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. You see, hand washing was incredibly important to Pharisees. They washed their hands before every meal religiously, and we're not just talking about a token rinse either. I mean, if you read the Mishnah, which is the collection, written collection of the oral tradition of the Pharisees, this is some of the instruction on hand washing. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. Okay? Oh my goodness. You know? When I was reading this, it actually reminded me of scrubbing in for surgery. 
You know, as a medical student, you, it's, it's crazy what you have to do to prep for surgery. I mean, you literally have to wash your hands for like 10 minutes, okay? I never knew that your fingers had four sides to them until you were required to scrub each of the four sides, get underneath the nail and everything. I mean, uh, by the end of my surgery rotation, my hands were bleeding because they were so chapped from all the hand washing that I was doing, okay? Uh, and that's what the Pharisees were like. Oh, my goodness. If you are a godly person, you will wash your hands, not just with the first water, but with the second water, right? And you're just going to get that thing clean because you're a godly, clean person. What's interesting is the Bible never commanded this. It doesn't. There's no place in the Bible where you could find this, where it says, wash your hands before every meal. It was a tradition that the Pharisees created all by themselves to just show others how holy they could be, how set apart they could be. Moses told us to do this. We'll do better than Moses. We're going to wash all the time. We're going to wash OCD level, you know. We're going to wash until our hands bleed. And so it comes around to Jesus' turn, and he just looks at the water jug and says, no thanks, I'm good. And you can imagine the reaction of these Pharisees. Um, And that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He was picking a fight. He was picking a fight. He intentionally refused to wash his hands so that he could use this as an occasion to confront the Pharisees on the hypocrisy of their religion. And so he says in response to their indignation, Now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, what Jesus was saying to them was, you are so concerned about how you look on the outside to others that you don't care about what's going on the inside that only God can see. And remember how we defined wisdom? Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, centering your entire life on God. And what he was saying, in essence, was, it looks like that's true of your life. It looks like that's exactly what you're doing. But the truth is, you are not living for the eyes of God. You're living for the eyes of men. You are reusing religion to puff yourself up and make yourself look more righteous than you actually are. And you couldn't be further from the heart of God by living your life in this way. If wisdom means living for the eyes of God alone, then you Pharisees are fools because you are not doing that. He brings home this truth by using an imagery that must have grossed out those Pharisees as much as it grosses us out today of the idea of washing the outside of a cup only and then pouring a drink for yourself in a dirty cup. I think that's the the absolutely most disgusting thought, isn't it? Is to drink out of a cup like this. Essentially, that's the root of hypocrisy. Being more worried about how you look on the outside than about what's really going on in the inside of your heart. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next verse, in verse 42, and he says, But woe to you Pharisees, 
For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus does not pull any punches. He hits them right where it hurts because this tithing issue, this is actually one of the main reasons why they were known as the separate ones, the separated ones, the Pharisees, because they tithed in a way that no other Jew did. Okay? It was one of their greatest sources of pride and distinction. You see, what a tithe basically means, and it's taught in the law of Moses, is that because God gave you everything that you've received in life, you return to him as an act of worship and thanksgiving 10% of everything that you have, everything that you've earned. And so the way that the most Jews would tithe is that they would, when they harvest, take 10% of their harvest, their crops, and give it to God. And then because most Jews had animals, you would give every 10th animal to God as a sacrifice, as an offering to him. Okay? But this wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. They went beyond the law and insisted on tithing everything. Everything they tithe. And what that meant was when they're cooking dinner and they're at that mint leaf, that their little mint plant in their herb garden, and they're picking some leaves to cook dinner, they would count them out. And every tenth leaf they would gather together and bring to the temple and say, For the Lord, my mint tithe. You know, it would be in my mind something like this. If on the Sunday after Halloween, you came to me with a bag and you said to me, uh, I had my children open up every piece of candy that they got for Halloween, trick-or-treating. And I cut off 10% of every piece of candy and here I bring it to ICC as an offering to God. They cried so much. But I'm sure those tears made God so happy. Here is my tithe from my Halloween income. You see, (laughs) that was the attitude of the Pharisees, you know? I mean, most people just take 10% if they're, you know, mediocre of their post-tax income. Others tithe off their pre-tax income. But we tithe everything, everything. It'd be like if you brought a little pack of napkin to church and said, I put a little salt on my egg this morning, and this is a tenth of that salt, and so I just wanted to give it to you, Pastor. I mean, this was the attitude of the Pharisees. We tithe. We tithe everything. And Jesus says, that's great. That's so wonderful. But what about justice and loving God? In those big things, you give nothing. You have no offering to present to the Lord. In essence, what Jesus was accusing them of was this. How can you guys be so unbelievably good at all of this petty little stuff? Like tithing every tenth leave of your herb garden. And yet you've missed the entire boat on the big stuff that is at the center of God's heart about justice and love and mercy. 
I mean, how is it that your religion has messed up the values of God so deeply and profoundly as this? That you don't even grasp the beginning of the heart of God in the way that you are practicing your religion. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps pressing. And in verse 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And with this accusation, he is the pointing the finger at the fundamental sin that made these Pharisees the enemy of God. He, in essence, is saying this. You guys act like all of your devotion, all of your sacrifices for God. But the truth is, it's not about God at all. It's all about you. You know, you act like you're the humblest, But the truth is, you are prouder than everyone else, craving attention anywhere you can get it. Rather than pointing others to God, every chance you get, you are drawing the attention to yourself and robbing God of his glory. That is also at the heart of hypocrisy. There is the outer appearance of devotion, but inwardly nothing has changed. You are putting all of that wickedness and evil of your heart and the self-centeredness of sin and just putting a veneer of religiosity on it to make it look like you're a better person than everybody else. You say it's all about God, but the truth is it's all about you. He then tells the Pharisees something really hard to hear for them. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. You see, according to Jewish law, if you accidentally walked on a grave, you would become unclean for seven days. And so the Jews fastidiously marked every tomb so that Jews would know a body is buried here and they would know to walk around it so that they wouldn't make themselves unclean. But what Jesus says to them is one, you know what you guys actually are like? You guys are like unmarked graves. And so people accidentally walk over you, but they don't realize the danger they're walking into. They think it's just regular ground, and they don't know they're walking over a dead body, and because they come in contact with you, they become unclean. You make other people dirty, in other words, unclean. Uh, It's basically like he's saying, like, you guys are like spiritual landmines, you know, that this is talking about the communal nature of sin, that it not only infects you, but it's infecting the people that you're influencing, the people that you are telling them this is what God wants, this is what it means to worship God. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Pretty strong words, aren't they? Luke chapter 11, verse 44. In this very passage we're looking at. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. Elsewhere he says, you are like the blind leading the blind. And eventually, both of you fall into a pit. Saying, you are like an unmarked grave. You know, 
outwardly it looks safe. Outwardly it looks like it's of God. Outwardly it looks like good religion. But the truth is you are like poison. And when people come in contact with you, their lives are destroyed by this poison that you teach to others. Now, as we read throughout the Gospels, um, it is so easy to bash the Pharisees, okay? I mean, and that, you know, that could, at the end of the day, be the whole point of the sermon is, you know, thank God we are not Pharisees. So let's sing our anti-Pharisee song, you know? And then we'll all march out of here thankful to God that we are not these Pharisees. Because it's so easy in our heart to think like, I can't believe how clueless these Pharisees were. I mean, like, so evil like that. Like, I can't believe that Jesus came in their midst and they rejected him. What kind of horrible people are these? But here's the truth. There is an inner Pharisee inside you. And there is an inner Pharisee inside me. And the reason why is because there is sin inside me. And there is sin inside you. And that sin gives rise to shame. And we need to talk a bit about shame in order to talk about hypocrisy and think about God's solution to hypocrisy. You see, usually when we talk about sin in America, we tend to use the language of guilt. When you sin, you are guilty. Now, guilt tends to look at sin more from a legal perspective, like getting a traffic ticket, having to go to court. You are guilty or you are not guilty. But what's interesting is when the Bible talks about sin, at a ratio of 10 to 1, it uses the language of shame far more than it uses the language of guilt. It uses shame words like nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, defilement. These are not guilt words. They are shame words. You see, when we talk about guilt, we're talking more about my legal standing. When we talk about shame, we're talking about something so much deeper and at the core of who we are, of our identity and our worth. Edward Welch says this. What is shame? You are shunned. Faces are turned away from you. They ignore you as if you didn't exist. You are naked. Faces are turned toward you. They stare at you as if you were hideous. You are worthless, and it's no secret. You are of little or no value to those whose opinions matter to you. I suck. That's what shame says on a good day. Shame says, you are not acceptable. You are a mistake. At first, you might hear it from others, such as parents or classmates. Later, you make it your own. I am not acceptable. I am a mistake. You see, whenever you find sin, you find shame right next to it. And this becomes one of the most destructive cycles that begins to enter into the heart of a person is this sin and shame cycle. And despite what modern psychology tries to tell us, Shame is not just a destructive feeling, a dysfunction 
that needs to be counseled out of you with more positive self-regard or better self-image. That's not the answer to shame. Welch goes on and he says this, You are an outcast, is blunt, matter-of-fact, and a bit impolite. A nicer way to say this would be, you feel as if you are an outcast. You feel as if you are worthless, though you really aren't. Shame doesn't seem as oppressive when you insert enough feel-as-ifs. If you only feel shameful, maybe it can be covered over by some affirming self-talk, and you'll be good to go. Shame is not a mirage. It is very real. A person who has lived with rejection can't neutralize it with happy thoughts. Shame is like dirt. No matter how it happened, you are a mess, and something has to be done about it. When you are dirty, there is no feel-as-if about it. Wishful thinking is ineffective. Psychiatric medications, drugs, or alcohol, a change in perspective, and self-affirmation are equally ineffective. Shame demands something much more potent than these superficial treatments. Do you hear what Welch is saying? This is sort of the modern notion of shame, is shame represents something that went wrong with your development as a person. It's a neurotic behavior that is not tied to reality. And so you just need enough counseling. You just need enough medication to get those bad thoughts out of your head and love yourself more. But what the Bible says is that's not actually what shame is about. Shame is very real. Shame reveals something about every one of us that we don't want to look at, about our inadequacies and failures and sin. And you know, the Pharisees try to get rid of this shame. The junk that they could not clean in their hearts, they try to clean with water by washing their hands. Now, at some rational level, that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? How can you try to clean your heart by washing your hands? But I want to argue that we do the exact same thing all the time. You see, because what we really come to recognize is, I can't clean what's in here. I can't. I keep making resolutions. I keep hating myself and telling myself, I'll never do it again, but I do. And I do it again and again and again. And I cannot win this battle. I can't. But I can win this battle. I can be a good washer. I can wash every meal. And maybe, just maybe, God would look at that and smile on me and be happy because I am devoted to him. And the way I can at least, the little that I can do is I can wash my hands. I can wash my hands, wash my hands and be a really religious person. You see, we're trying to make our sin manageable. Trying to find something that I can do to try to counterbalance all the garbage that's in my heart. This is what man-made religion is all about. And ultimately, this is what hypocrisy is all about. I feel helpless when I think about the war that is raging in my heart, the evil that I am capable of. But at least if I wash my hands, I feel like I'm doing something. I'm contributing to the problem. If at least in a small way, I can get on God's good side by doing something religious, then I don't feel so powerless over sin and this battle that wages within me. 
How do you wash your hands? Maybe it is by coming to church every week and showing yourself to be a devout person or how much money you put in the offering plate or about the things that you avoid, that you don't do in light of some of the things you actually do do. The prophet Micah realized the futility of this approach to our sin when he wrote in Micah 6, verse 6 to 7, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted one, God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's, he's saying, when I go down this road, there's no end to it. What more could I sacrifice to try to earn my way back to God and earn his favor? And he says, no matter how much I do this stuff, no matter how much religious activity I fill my life, there is still this gaping hole that says it's not enough. It's not enough. It doesn't atone for my sin. It doesn't cancel the bad. Ultimately, as Micah is suggesting, there isn't anything you can do to cross that gap with God. It's something that God alone must do. And that is the moment we begin to grasp the true gospel. Alan Kraft writes these words. Jesus' strongest denunciations were directed not toward the immoral and corrupt, but rather toward moral people who sincerely wanted to do what was right. Trying to be good doesn't get us any closer to God. In fact, it tends to move us in the opposite direction, away from living the gospel. Several years ago, a friend of mine and I decided to hold each other accountable in regard to an area of sin with which we both struggled, sexual lust. After a while, we realized our accountability really had no sting in it if one of us fell into the sin. There was no real negative consequence. So we decided to up the ante a bit. $20 given to the other person for every sinful lapse. It worked for several weeks as neither of us gave in to lustful thoughts. Surely a definitive spiritual victory, right? We certainly avoided the top sin on our list, or did we? In the midst of our battle for purity, I came to a troubling realization. The main reason we were avoiding lust was because of our greed. <laughs> Neither of us wanted to lose 20 bucks. Our one deadly sin was simply been overtaken by another. We were trying to be good, but in reality, we were treating a spiritual cancer with a Band-Aid. One of the dangers of trying to be good is that it blinds us to the depth of our sinfulness. You see that? That's the scary thing. Sometimes religion can be the worst enemy of God. Because religion says, do good. Look good in God's eyes. Look good in the eyes of others. And maybe you can... Show yourself actually to be kind of good. But what the gospel says is, that's a dead-end road. You can try for the rest of your life to be good. And it's never good enough. Not good enough for a holy and perfect God. It's not until we actually learn to stop that fight and embrace our helplessness that we actually take the first steps to true religion the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because what the Bible tells us is that unless we acknowledge our inability to be good and throw ourselves at, our, at the mercy of God, there is no hope for us. There is no life-giving message. But what the Bible does say is that if you do acknowledge that helplessness and surrender your life to Christ by his perfection, his sinlessness given to you, you can be right before God. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1 to 4 says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This is the promise of God, that if you would only acknowledge your helplessness in the sin battle, that God can give you his power to overcome, that the righteousness of Christ becomes your righteousness And you no longer have to prove anything to God or to anyone else. And the church of Jesus Christ can become a genuine confessing community in which we put away all those silly games of hypocrisy, in which you don't have to come to ICC and try to put your best foot forward and try to make it look like your week went splendidly when in truth you and your wife fought the whole week. And even on the drive here, you guys were at each other's throats. And you're kind of worried about some of the things that are coming out of your kids. And you're saying, does that come from me? Does it come from my influence on them? And you look at the mess of your life and you make the brokenness of of the garbage that's in your heart and you say, I cannot solve this. I cannot fix me. I cannot fix you. But then we become a gospel community that says, we're all in the same boat. We're all struggling with the same things. We're all failures. But this is a place of healing. This is a place where you find genuine answers, not religious games, shenanigans, and masks. And that, as your pastor, is my sincere prayer for ICC, is that that is the kind of community we become. That when somebody confesses a struggle, we don't kick him when he's down. But we say, I am just like you. I have my own struggles. And we together look to Christ, who alone shows us the way. As we uh, get ready to take communion this morning for this worship, I just want to invite you to reflect a bit on your life and think about your situation. And can I just challenge you to think about um, sort of how you put together this whole religion thing, you know? And it's so easy to equate Christianity with uh, a, a code of rules, a code of conduct and say, non-Christians live their life like this, but Christians live their life like this. And so, by becoming a Christian, it's just like I changed clubs. I used to do this, and now I do this. Or I don't do this. And that's such a superficial mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the truth is that every one of us is haunted by the sense of shame, aren't we? Of not measuring up a feeling like an outcast, a feeling like, 
Why does it look like everyone else seems to have their life put together? But inwardly, I see this, just the storm raging in my heart all the time. And it sometimes frightens me, the depth of darkness to which I feel like I could descend and the places that I'm capable of going. And what the Bible says is, you know, that's not just true of you. That's true of the entire human race. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have wandered. All of us are living in a darkness that if people only knew the half of, they probably wouldn't want to be our friends, want to be near us. But that's the fate of all of humanity. And to that fate, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. And as we saw in those wonderful words in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul, Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to ask you that simply this morning. Do you know the freedom of that declaration? I have nothing to be ashamed of. I don't need to put my head down. And it's not because I'm such a great person, but it's because of Christ who died for me and covered my sin. Do you know the freedom and the joy of that declaration to not have to be haunted by your sin and your failure, but to know that every day God looks at you and smiles and is so pleased with you because every time he looks at you, he sees the Son, Jesus Christ. Can I invite you, if you don't know that freedom, that maybe this is the day that you could surrender all of that fight for your own righteousness over to God. Say, Christ, be my righteousness. I receive by faith freely what I could never earn in a thousand years by my best efforts. Maybe that's just a, a renewed prayer for those of you who have already confessed that prayer before God because just like the Pharisees, even though at one time we may have confessed that, we know how easily we backslide into old habits. And how shame can once again begin to wreak havoc in our lives. And maybe you can once again embrace the gospel and say, as I sit here in this pew this day, in this chair, I don't sit trying to prove to anybody that somehow I'm worthy of this. But why I can sing these songs and why I can come to this table and take communion is because I have absolute confidence in what Christ has done for me. I come to this table this day because I am a sinner in need of the mercy offered at this table. And I take it without any embarrassment, without any shame, but with joy and confidence. Would you just ready your heart like that? And the worship team is going to lead us in one song as we get ready to come to this table and receive communion together as a church family.